If you have a Bible with this morning, go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. As I mentioned, and as you know, because we lit the Advent candle, we are in our first week of the season of Advent. The season of Advent is something that we celebrate every year. Uh, The worship source book says it's a time for us to have a season of waiting where we uh, remember it's designed to cultivate our awareness of God's actions in the past, in the present, and in the future. It's a season of waiting designed to cultivate our awareness of God's actions, what God is doing, what He is up to. Now, we often want to be aware of God's actions, past, present, and future, right? We, we don't want to not do that any other season, but this season is a time where we specifically zoom out and look at the big picture. See, this, this summer we went hiking at, at the Cascade River State Park, and when we hiked down in the river valley, we saw the beauty of the water, and we enjoyed and could smell the the, the, the plants around, and we could hear the rush of the water from our campsite. And all of that was was glorious, but we were looking so closely at it, we couldn't see the scope of the whole. But then one of the days while we were camping, we took uh, a hike up to Lookout Mountain where we could see for miles, including the strip of river going through the forest. But we could see the forest for miles and, and the just massive beauty of the landscape God had created. And I think sometimes we experience things like that when we go to scripture, we normally spend our scripture time down in the valley of a particular book, going deep, looking at the rocks, listening to the water, and seeing how God is moving in that particular book. We've been doing that with the pastorals, looking deep in at what things were like in Ephesus and in Crete, and how Paul counseled Timothy and Titus to shepherd those churches, and how we should interact with our church and shepherd our church. And now we want to take a hike up the mountain and look out at the broad landscape of God's word, of the redemptive story that God is telling. You see, the Bible, we can sometimes think of it because we study different books and we treat them individually. We can sometimes think of the Bible as a collection of different books or letters or stories uh, about a common theme. Sure, it's about God, right? And his grace. But we can sometimes think of them as so disconnected that we don't see how the Bible itself is a combination of books and stories and letters all telling a big story. That's called a meta narrative. That's called that's called a, a, a meta narrative, a story that's told by a bunch of connected stories. That's what the Bible is. See, it's not just a bunch of stories or books or historical documents that all have some common theme. They're all connected into this meta narrative, into this story of stories, the grand story that Scripture is telling. It's God's story of His plan to create and redeem a people through Jesus for His glory and for their joy. The Bible, the whole story of the whole Bible is God's plan to create and redeem a people through Jesus, His Son, for His glory. And for their joy. Because we're part of that people. That's for our joy too. That's part of our story. 
So to help us look at God's actions, past, present, and future, to help us be aware, to cultivate our awareness of these actions, we're going to look at pieces of that story leading up to the climax of that story in Jesus Christ and the Incarnation, right? We're going to do that during this Advent season. But before we look at pieces of that story, it's helpful to zoom out and get a summary picture of the whole story. Thankfully, the New Testament authors often did that. And one of the places where the New Testament authors do that is Paul in Ephesians. Paul starts his letter to the Ephesian church by blessing and praising God for this grand story that God is telling. And in doing so, he summarizes the story. And so to get our bearings to that story, we're going to read and look at his summary this morning and help us see how God from eternity past through history to eternity future is blessing his people by creating and redeeming them through his blessed son, Jesus. So in light of that, let's read the text for this morning. Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 10. Paul writes this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he lavished upon us in all, excuse me, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And Paul knew how to write a sentence, right? This whole thing is one sentence. In fact, the sentence continues in verses 11 to 14. But we're going to just focus on this part of the sentence this morning and look at this plan that God put in place. Paul starts out in verse 3 by declaring the blessing, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Blessed be the God who has blessed us, which naturally leads into the question, how has God blessed us? What does it mean to be blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing? What has God done? What does Paul have in mind? That leads Paul then to look at eternity past, to say in verse 4, even as he chose us in him, even as God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So turn with me for a minute, put a, put a finger in Ephesians 1. And turn with me for a minute to Genesis 1. All the way back to the beginning of the Bible, we have Genesis 1.1, right? It's probably a verse that many of you know, just even off the top of your head. Genesis 1.1, if you're in there in your Bible, it says, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But Paul says in Ephesians 1 that 
God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So what that means is, in the beginning, God created, but before that is what Paul is talking about. So before Genesis 1.1, Paul is saying God made a choice. God chose something before the foundation of the world. What did he choose? It says in the beginning, right, God created the heavens and the earth. So at some point there was nothing. It was just God eternally existing as Father, Son, and Spirit in the triune fellowship. But there was nothing else. And God chose to create. God chose to create the sun and the stars and the moon. Everything we see in the heavens from the furthest galaxies away. And he chose to create all of the microscopic things we see on this earth. All of the tiny creatures hiding in caves that are yet to be even discovered. God chose to create those before he did any of it. He made this choice to create. But he also didn't just make a choice to create in general. He made a choice to create people. When Paul says in Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him. He's talking about us, human beings, Paul and the Ephesian church, and us as members of that church and members of humanity. God chose to create us for a purpose. And that's what Paul goes into next. So all of this is happening in our Bibles, in this story that the Bible is telling, before even Genesis 1-1, before the story is starting to be written. This is happening. Looking back at Ephesians 1, We see Paul say in verse 4, Even as God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, what that we should be holy and blameless before him. Choosing us to be holy and blameless, we have to ask the question, what does it mean to be holy? You might, if you've been a Christian for a long time, and been around the church a long time, you probably have some idea in your head. Where does that idea come from though? What is holiness? It comes from God's revealed word. We see in Leviticus 11, we see God say, Be holy, for I am holy. God defines holiness as who he is, himself. It's his godness is one way to think about holiness. So when it says, when Paul says that before the foundation of the world, before God created anything, he chose to create and chose a people to be holy. Paul is saying God chose a people to be like him, to reflect his character and nature. And what was God like? Beautiful, glorious, wonderful. Everything beautiful that we see in creation is a reflection of the beauty of God. And it's a dim reflection. It's an incomplete reflection. And so before creation began, God chose to create people, you and I, to reflect his beauty, to show forth his holiness. We say God chose to create us in his image, right? That's what it means, to show what he is like. So he chose this people to be holy and blameless before him. And in verse 5, not only that, but in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, it's really easy for us One of the challenges of reading this text after the cross is it's easy for us to read this in light of the cross. And in one sense, that's not wrong. We understand adoption and how God accomplished adoption through the message of the cross, right? But God 
Paul is talking here about what God was choosing and deciding before any of that, before creation happened. God chose, predestined us for adoption as sons. What did it mean to be a son before any sons were created? What did it mean to be adopted before there were families? It meant, the only thing it could mean, which is a reflection of what it meant for the Son of God to be a son eternally, before time. In other words, before time, what it meant to be a son was to be eternally loved by the Father and eternally enjoying fellowship with the Father. Because that's what Jesus the Son was doing. Being loved by the Father and enjoying His fellowship with the Father. And so when Paul says, God chose, predestined, us to be adopted as sons, he's saying God chose before he created anything else to predestine a people to enjoy the love and the fellowship that he has with his son, to enjoy the fellowship of the Trinity. That is what God decided even before time began. So in eternity past, Paul is saying, the story starts with God choosing to create and bless an eternal people who would reflect his beauty and who would enjoy perfect fellowship with him, perfect relationship with him. This isn't just any people, though, Paul is talking about, is it? He says he chose us, verse 4. He predestined us, verse 5. He's talking about him in the Ephesian church, but he's also talking about us. This shows us that God, motivated by his own love, according to the purpose of his own will, chose you and I to be reflectors of his beauty and to be united with him in perfect fellowship. This magnifies God's grace. This is why Paul writes, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Because nothing we could contribute motivated this choice. There was no you and no goodness that you have brought to the table that was available to choose you by before the foundation of the world. Every goodness that you have in you is a reflection of this goodness that God chose when he said, you're going to be holy and blameless and I'm going to put my stamp of beauty on you. This shows us that there's nothing that motivates God outside of his own love and will to show grace to us. And this shows us then how great his grace towards us is that we were chosen in love to be blessed. Now, we kind of get what that means, this side of the cross. But the question remains, if God has chosen, how will he carry out those blessings? How will he carry out that plan to create and bless a people. We know that Christ is central to that plan, and you can see it here clearly on the page in Ephesians. Look at all the references to Christ in this plan. Verse 3, he has blessed us in Christ. Verse 4, he chose us in him or in Christ that we should be holy and blameless before him. Verse 5, he predestined us through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Verse 6, he has blessed us in the beloved. Right? We know that Christ is at the center of God's plan to create and bless a people that 
share his beauty and show it forth and enjoy the fellowship we have with him. But what I think is important for us to remember this Advent is that this is common knowledge on this side of the cross, but it wasn't common knowledge when history began, when Moses was leading the God's people through the wilderness. This was not common knowledge that Jesus Christ would be the center of all of this plan. This was unknown. It was a mystery that God chose to reveal in history. And that's what I want us to remember as we move through Advent. This, this unfolding of this plan, this mystery, that's part of the story. And that's part of the story that we can so easily miss. See, the whole Bible is a story of God revealing His plan to bless by redeeming His people through His Son. And it's a mystery that was partially hidden. Think about what Abraham knew when God said in Genesis 12 that I will raise up offspring for you and through your offspring all the families of the earth will be blessed. Did Abraham have any clue that God was talking about sending his own son Jesus as a one-day offspring to bless the world by redeeming them? No. He trusted God, believed him, and it was counted to him as righteousness, but he did not understand the whole thing. Likewise, what about when David was promised in 2 Samuel 7 that God would put one of his descendants on the throne who would rule forever? Did David understand what it meant that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords? He understand part of it, glimpses of it, but he did not understand the whole thing because this this plan of God was shrouded in mystery. This wasn't by accident. This was actually intentional. Listen to what Paul writes in Colossians 1. He says this in Colossians 1 about this mystery. Colossians 1 verse 25. Paul says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. It wasn't, it was partially known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Notice God chose to make known. This mystery that had been hidden, God chose to make known, and it wasn't because he just won a day up and decided. It was because God had intentionally hidden parts of the mystery, had intentionally hidden partially his wisdom and how his wisdom would be unfolded over time. We've seen hints of this, even in Titus, when we saw that God promised eternal life, and he never lies. He promised it before the ages began. And what does Paul write to Titus? He says, and at the proper time manifested it in his word. At the proper time, God revealed this mystery. Galatians 4.4 says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. In other words, God had a purposeful timing. God's plan was deliberate in unfolding this mystery over history. Why would he do that? Why not? Why send Moses to bring God's people out of Egypt and not just send Jesus, right? Why, why send wicked kings to Israel 
and prophets to warn them and nations to punish them instead of just sending a righteous King Jesus to rule them. Right? The question's got to be in our minds. Why would God unfold his plan this way? Why would he partially hide his wisdom? I think ultimately we have to just appeal to God who works all things according to the counsel of his will and who has alone possesses all wisdom. But I think we can make some inferences. Think with me for a minute about what Paul says in verse 7. Paul says in verse 7, In him, or in the beloved, who is Christ, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. How do we understand what that text means? How do we know what redemption is, for example? One way we know what redemption means is because we know the story of Ruth, who had no hope and came to a a people and was impoverished and and was trying to take care of her mother-in-law, Naomi, and no one was there to redeem her except for her kinsman redeemer, Boaz who did redeem her, who rescued her from her destitution and restored her. How do we know what redemption is? We know what redemption is because Israel, when they were desperate, cried out to God in slavery in Egypt. And what did God do? He redeemed them from slavery in Egypt, brought them out and eventually into the promised land. We know what redemption is because we've seen it in God's story. How do we know that blood is necessary for forgiveness of sins. Because we've seen it reflected all the way through God's story, right? I'm reading Leviticus right now in in one of my daily Bible readings, and it is clear that blood is necessary to cover sin. And that true blood, Christ's blood, fully covers sin. We know, too, from the example of the Passover, that blood signifies our safety in God's grace. We know these things from the stories of Scripture. How do we know that we need forgiveness? We know because we see all over Scripture the depravity of humankind. We see even God's best and brightest who seem like they're going to be faithful. We see them fall, right? And we see others delve into things like child sacrifice instead of repenting and turning to God making gods of their own making, even God's people forming a golden calf at the foot of the mountain that's flaming, that Moses is receiving the commandments. We see the depths of our own depravity in Scripture. We know we need forgiveness. And we know that when God says that we have forgiveness, we have redemption, we know that God is faithful to do that. Because we've seen God's mercy over and over again, right? That's why stories like David and Bathsheba are in the scriptures for us. To tell us how evil our hearts can be and how magnificent God's mercy is when we turn from our sin and repent and trust in him. We only know these things because we have history with God revealed to us in scripture. The unfolding of this mystery in history shows us that God makes promises and keeps them. 
See, all of his promises throughout history that we have recorded in Scripture are really just continuations of this choice that he made in eternity past to create and bless by redeeming a people for his own possession. All of his promise keeping then that we see all over the story of God, the history of God's people teaches us that God keeps his promises. So when we come to the gospel and we see the promise that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, we know that God will keep that promise because we've seen him keep his promises. Over and over and over again, God's people have a collective memory stored for us in scripture of God being faithful to keep his promises. This prepares us, friends, to embrace and trust the promise of the gospel. Without this, we wouldn't have that, right? Why wouldn't God just skip to the climax? I mean, Paul does when he's summarizing the story. But without all of this history, the climax doesn't make sense. The cross is only understandable to us only compelling to us in the context of why we needed the cross in the first place. Without this history, without an understanding of the depths of our depravity and the grace and mercy of God and the holiness of God, without an understanding of that, Jesus saves sinners doesn't make any sense. It's just a platitude. And so often we are in danger of... Thinking, putting our focus on Jesus saves sinners, which is true, but not hearing and knowing the rest of the story. We are so, it's so easy for us to want to read the, the Wikipedia article version of the gospel message because it's, it's lighter than this, right? It's easier than this. It gets to the point quicker. But friends, this story, this story that unfolds before us of creation and redemption is a story that gives the cross so much more weight to us. It is so much more beautiful against the backdrop of our own insufficiency. So much more beautiful against the backdrop of God's promises made eons ago, fulfilled in Christ. It is necessary that we see the cross against this backdrop, friends. God uses the history of, of the people in his word to prepare us for the climax of the cross and resurrection. And so we need that history. That's why we spend time, particularly in Advent, looking at this history. We need this history too, because the history of God's people waiting for the fulfillment of promises teaches us how to wait for fulfillment of promises. We're going to look at that even after Christmas and look at what we can learn from that but it's necessary for us because we still live in this tension, don't we? Paul continues here when he says, we have redemption through his blood, verse seven, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. And here's verse 10, Paul transitions to eternity future as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. We know this plan is started. We know this plan is initiated and that the, the, the victory of Christ is assured. But this is a plan that's still 
coming to consummation, the fullness of time for all things being united in Christ has not yet come. We live right now between verses 9 and 10. We live in this tension of the already and the not yet, still waiting for promises to be fulfilled. Not wondering if they will, but wondering how to wait. Right? Wondering what God's purpose is in this timing. Why wait, God? Why not fulfill it now? We learn from the unfolding of this mystery across history, how to live in this tension, how to live between verses 9 and 10. This whole story ultimately teaches us about God's plan from creation to make known His glory so that it could be enjoyed by His people. Right? The end of all of this, why Paul includes this story in his letter to the Ephesians, it's not even primarily to tell him this story. It's to say all of this means blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise to God, right? The goal and end of this story is that we would praise and enjoy our Creator. That's the answer to the first catechism question, right? What's man's primary purpose? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's what we were created to do, and we can't accomplish that. We can't do that rightly if we have an impoverished view of what God's entire plan of redemption is about, right? If we have an impoverished view of Christ blessing us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, if we don't know the story of all God has done and all God will do, then that's really just empty words to us. We need this story, friends. Knowing this history magnifies our joy. That's my goal and my desire for me and for you during this Advent season, is that as we look at this history together, our joy would be magnified. And we would be able to declare with Paul, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. Right? Knowing this story is one thing, but knowing that it's a story that's your story changes everything. Right? I was talking to the kids about using never-ending story as an example. And they said, please don't do that. <laughs> we watched it recently, and it was different right, than we remember. But I'm sure many of you remember it from kids. And I was just struck by this point in the story when Bastion, the main character, is reading this book, and it's all outside here in his imagination. And he realizes through the course of the story as the characters start to interact with him, that he's actually in the story. And that changes everything. Puts a massive twist on the ending of the story. Right? And the same is true for us. When we read the Bible and we read the history of God's people as out here, something that happened over there, and then we entered the story when we were born, and this, the part of the story that matters to us is really Christ and the cross, the story won't resonate in our hearts. But when we realize that we are characters in the story and that the history of God's people is our history, that will change everything about how we read it. That will magnify our joy. That will help us see that the history of God's faithfulness to his people is a history of God's faithfulness to us. And that's what we must see to be able to declare, blessed be God, 
The only option after we see that, after we remember that in the midst of Advent, is to declare what Paul did in Romans. And that's where I want us to end this morning. Paul is looking at this mystery that has been revealed to him, including God putting a partial hardening on the hearts of the Jews so that the gospel could go out to the Gentiles. And what does he say in response? He breaks out into this spontaneous praise and says what we can only say when we see this plan. Verse 33 of Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you help us to behold this story as our story, to behold your faithfulness to your people as faithfulness to us, to behold the mystery and the unraveling of your plan over history, the the unpacking and unfolding to be revealed to us in Christ. May you help us to just exclaim, you are wise, you possess all knowledge. The depth and the beauty of your plan is beyond compare. And you are worthy of all of our praise. Blessed be you, our God and our Father. Would you help us do that now as we, as we sing about the apex of this story, Christ Jesus. Amen.